This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Today is World Right to Die Day. And here in Canada, our new law on assisted dying has just come into effect. It's been implemented uh, for five months. Just last week, a young man with mental illness, very young man in his 20s, made headlines with his request for an assisted death. And that would not be legal under our assisted dying laws, but it may have been possible in some European countries. So uh, they have far more experience with assisted dying laws. And uh, Dr. Ruben Vancouverden, a Dutch palliative care specialist, is in Toronto for a panel discussion sponsored by the organization Dying with Dignity. He wants to talk about myths surrounding medically assisted dying in the Netherlands, and he wants to compare the Canadian system, the brand new Canadian system, to the Dutch experience. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Vancouverden. Thank you. Uh, So um, what do you see? First of all, uh, a a lot of people have this impression that in Europe and places like the Netherlands, it's kind of open season, that the laws are very liberal, uh, sometimes too liberal. What, What do you say to that? Well, the, the laws are not liberal at all. They just give very clear guidance for doctors how to deal with this, the, the requests for medical assistance in dying or euthanasia. And uh, the big difference between, for instance, Canada and the Netherlands is that the laws in the Netherlands, they protect the doctor. So the doctor is not being prosecuted for murder in the first degree if he abides according to the law and follows the rules. And that also means that the patients do not have a right for maid or euthanasia. It is the doctor who may perform maid or euthanasia if the patient is eligible. It's the other way around in Canada, where in Canada the patient has more or less a right, and the doctors yeah, they have to follow, of course, rules and see if patients are eligible, but still can be prosecuted in one way or another by organizations or family members, and that's a, that's a, a different situation. Oh, I, I, I wasn't uh, aware that doctors could still be prosecuted if, uh, if they said the patients qualified and followed all the rules. Yes, but if someone disagree with uh, that the patient did qualify, yes or no, yeah, it, or it, doctors would be very reluctant to see that the patient is qualifying, yes or no. In Holland, it's completely different. So what do you mean? So if, if, a, if a family member makes their objections known before this happens, is that what you're talking about? Yes, then a doctor may refrain from doing uh, euthanasia or medical assistance in dying. He, he would be very careful because he doesn't want to go to court. Okay, well, that hasn't... I mean, our, our law is uh, very new, and yes. I, that has not happened yet. 
Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh-huh. Um, what about this whole issue of medically assisted dying for people with um, mental conditions? It is possible in the Netherlands, but still uh, when people are competent so that they realize what their request means, that it means that they're going to die by the use of medication or with the help of a doctor. Uh, if they have passed that moment that they are not aware of what's going on, let's say um, you have the demented people who do not recognize their family anymore, they live a life maybe being for more or less happy, but they have no clue what the doctor is coming to do when he comes there with a syringe or, 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 or oral preparation, then the doctors will not perform euthanasia or will not uh, help someone to die, even if there is a advanced directive. Oh, okay, so, so it, it, I was just going to ask about that, this issue of an advanced directive, yes. because uh, there are people here who are proposing that, that you can make an advanced directive that says... You can, make, you, you can make an advanced directive in the Netherlands too, and sometimes that helps, but the doctors in the Netherlands, they want to be sure that this is really the wish of the patient to die, and if the patient doesn't understand what you're doing when you come there with your medication the doctors will not perform euthanasia because they still want people to be aware of what's going on. So we advise people to come to the doctor with this request when it's five minutes to 12 and not five minutes after 12, so to speak. Uh, okay, uh, but, but doesn't that, I mean, one of the arguments uh, for assisted dying in general, at least here, has been that, that without this law, uh, some people were basically uh, killing themselves too soon because, you, you know, whether they had a physical uh, ailment because they were afraid they wouldn't be able to do so. So does that not... Do you, do you get what no, I'm getting at? We, we make an exception for, uh, let's say, dementia. That is a real exception. Uh, in all other cases, we need to have a patient who is suffering unbearably and hopelessly so that there is no relief or no possibility to get any relief, not now, not in the future. But the exception is with dementia. If, if for instance, if your parents had dementia, you know what it's going to lead to. So if the diagnosis is with you also that you have a dementia, for instance, the Alzheimer type, then you know what's going to happen in the near future. And that may give a sense of unbearable suffering at that moment. So then doctors will perform euthanasia. Okay. But that's, but that's the only exception, let's, let's say, for future suffering. But in all other cases, uh, euthanasia or medical assistance in dying can only be done when there is unbearable suffering. Okay, so I'm just, I'm, I'm just a little confused now. So you're saying that if somebody with dementia has an advanced directive, you will perform it even if they don't know when the time comes what you're about to do? That is possible, yes. But a lot of doctors, they would like to have the euthanasia done before people really lose their mind, that they don't know what's going on. So, doctor, so even with an advanced directive. Okay, so it's legal, but you won't necessarily find a doctor to do it. Am I exactly okay? Um, that's that's correctly put. It's legal, but you will uh, difficultly find a doctor who will do it. 
Yes. Okay, I'm going to give uh, the numbers out again. I'm on the line uh, with Dr. Ruben Van Coeverden, and he is a Dutch palliative care specialist. He's in Toronto to uh, compare the system for uh, medically assisted dying in the Netherlands to Canada. This has been a very hot-button big issue for us here. If you have questions or comments, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, Dr. Vancouverden, uh, one of the issues that's cropped up here, um, we have a lot of religiously based hospitals, they receive public funding. And uh, some of them have said, well, it's against our religion to comply with medically assisted dying, and therefore we're not going to do it. And people on the other side say, well, they're getting public funding and they should comply with the law of the land. Is there any such issue in the Netherlands? No, not at all. Because in Holland, you cannot... um force a doctor or an institution to perform euthanasia because it's not a law that's giving the patient the right to have it done. It's a law that protects the doctor who performs it from being prosecuted. That's, that's the, the biggest difference that there is between the two countries. So religious-based organizations can refuse and they don't have to refer. In Canada, they will they have to refer to another doctor or organization who will do perform euthanasia or MAID. But in the Netherlands, no one can force a doctor to do it. Okay, so that's, uh, that's interesting. So I guess in some ways the laws are actually tighter in the Netherlands. Yes, correct. And um, We if- are very liberal, but the law itself uh, is more or less protective, yes. Okay. Um, if you um, do, you have any um, advice for Canada as we, you know, we're really at the very beginning of this. Yes. Well, I think Canada should learn also from the experience from other countries where euthanasia is lawful now. So we also have Belgium, which is more or less the same as the Netherlands, but slightly different. And there are some states in the United States where it is possible. So we should learn from each other's experience. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here. I'm, I'm basically, I was asked by the CMA to... Uh, Canadian Medical Association. Yes, of the courses, so... And, uh, you know, but what you've said to me so far um, is that your law is framed uh, totally different. And, and I guess our law is not going to change that way. What other advice uh, would you offer us? Well, I think that if you look what in, uh, practically how it turns out with the requests for MAID and euthanasia in Canada and see how doctors will have to deal with this, if they need uh, additional laws or additional uh, rules to comply, that makes it easier. Mm-hmm. Go for the practical situation. How can you deal with this problem as practically as possible? Uh-huh. That, is, that is what we did in the Netherlands. And and can you can you tell us anything specific that comes to mind? Um, yes, one of the things is that uh, life expectancy is not an issue under the Dutch law. It is mainly focusing on unbearable suffering, 
being hopelessly unbearable suffering. That's the main issue. If that's the case, it doesn't matter what your life expectancy is. And in Canada, for instance, there has to be a foreseeable death. It's a little bit flexible, but still, uh, I think the law in Canada wants someone to have a more or less short life until death. And in Holland, that's not an issue. If someone is suffering unbearably, and there's no hope on, on relief, even with best pos- possible palliative care, then you qualify for euthanasia or MAID. And uh, in terms of the things that people are really afraid of, abuses, uh, have you seen uh, uh, big evidence of that? Not at all. Not at all. There is no slippery slope. There's no widespread abuse of the system. And especially vulnerable people, people with disabilities or mental illnesses uh, are, are protected. The way we deal with this problem by entering a second opinion physician who checks whether the, the procedure is done correctly, if the means are correctly, and if, if there is in fact a case of unbearable suffering, which is hopeless, and the request came from the patient, him or herself, not from the family, but really from the patient, him or herself, then you can proceed with the whole procedure. Oh. And uh, a lot of safeguards within the system, and they're not being abused. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for that. That's Dr. Ruben Vancouverton, who is a Dutch palliative care specialist. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to update a story that we brought you last week, and that is about Yazidi refugees. they have been targeted for genocide by the Islamic State, yet yet they haven't been at the top of the list of refugees coming here to Canada. A lot of fanfare with uh, us bringing refugees. There was a promise last week, and uh, uh, activists are not happy about follow-through. So we are going to have that when we come back after this break. Before we go, I'm just going to give you the numbers again, 416 Toll-free 1-866-744-740. Back with Reverend Majido Shafi after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. We're back with an update on a story we told you about a week ago, and that is when activists were hailing a commitment from the federal immigration minister to resettle Yazidi refugees in Canada and to give them priority. This minority has been targeted for the most brutal, inhumane treatment by the Islamic State, and their plight has been recognized as a genocide. So what's the holdup? However... Just a week after making the commitment, the government has gone dark on the subject. And Reverend Majida Shafi, president of One Free World International, uh, wants to talk about it, wants some action. Uh, Majid, welcome. Thank you for having me again. Okay, well, uh, um, what happened or hasn't happened inside of a week to make you want to bring this to our attention again? Uh, it's really the, the fact that there is nothing happening. Uh, when the government indicated that they will bring this girls in a matter of four months, you would think that there is already plans, 
there is already the details about the logistics, how they are choosing them, uh, how they are coming, what, what, which kind of support system that they will have. Remember that they are used to be sex slaves, so they are victims of rape and torture. They are not any refugee, the refugee that really suffered to the extreme. Uh, what is their support system? How they are choosing them? What is the logistics of bringing them? Uh, right now, uh, I'm, I'm like as much as I'm happy with the announcement that the government made after a long few months of silence uh, about this issue, but yet the government is not giving us any details. They indicated that they sending they send already team on the ground to investigate the, the best way to help, but yet our people on the ground didn't see anybody from the Canadian delegation. Who is this Canadian delegation? What their names? What the outcome of their trip? So the, there is a lot of things in the shadow and in the dark, and the government have to come clean and tell us exactly what they are doing. Uh huh. And so they told you that they have sent a team, but they wouldn't give you any information about that team. Exactly. So we don't know who's the team, who's the member of the team, what's the outcome of what they saw and what they investigated there. So, did, when, did when, a, sorry, did any of your people see any evidence of nothing? The team? Nothing. And you know what? My people in the ground is the best and the old human rights activists from the Yazidi community. So if the Yazidi community themselves in Canada and in Iraq and in Syria never met of any of this Canadian team that the Canadian claimed that the Canadian government claimed that they sent. So who did they meet with? Did they meet with government officials? Uh, if they didn't meet with the victims, how do you think that they will be able to help? Um, so uh, you think maybe they met with government officials? Which government officials? I have no idea. It's a good question for the government. Seriously. Uh, my point here is, as long as we are in the dark, and as long as uh, the, the, the community and the Canadian people in the dark, there is something here always red flag. Uh, come clean, tell us exactly your plan. We're more than happy to help. We're more than happy to cooperate. Canada is a country of immigrants and refugees, uh, and we are more than happy to help these girls to take the first steps of healing. Um, what do you think is, do you think that perhaps uh, they're not doing anything? Do you think that it's that they, they don't want to be associated with you? What, what, what do you think is behind this? Quite honestly, I don't know. And, I, uh, and the, the, re- the reason of the radio silence is something that I'm not familiar with. Maybe they don't want to deal with us because we mostly dealt with the Conservative Party before that. I don't care. Don't deal with me. I am not the most important part here. The most important part here is the victims. Go to Iraq, meet with them, go with the, the human rights activists, Yazidis human rights activists. But even Mirza, somebody like Mirza Ismail, here, the head of the Yazidi community, never heard anything. So today in the morning, we had a press conference. We had people from the Jewish community, Christian community, Muslim community. We had Rahir Raza from the Muslim community. Uh, we had Mirza Ismail from the Yazidi community. And we are all asking the same thing. It's not only us. We have 15 organizations behind us asking the same question. Give us the information. Um, my understanding is that, that Canada, uh, even with all of bringing the other refugees, the Muslim refugees, um, has been slow and, and not wildly well organized. <laughs> uh, this is what, it's a failure of a leadership, quite honestly. So what we're watching right now is a chaos. 
uh, a, a government that's taking a decision and the, the steps, how they will do, how they will reach there, is, is unknown. And once again, I'm telling the Canadian government right now, our Canadian people is very good. I came as a refugee. Uh, the love and the healing of the Canadian people was overwhelming. That uh, it healed my heart, really. And I'm telling the Canadian government, you don't have to do this alone. You have here organizations on the ground that are willing to help. You have NGOs. You have Canadian people that they want to help. Reach out to us, and we are more than happy to help and to take the burden, to carry the burden with you. You don't have to carry it alone. I'm, I'm going to read a quote from Mirza Ismail, who is the founder and chairman of uh, Yazidi Human Rights International. And he yeah. says, I hope our Canadian government does not make the same mistakes where the real victims are ignored and others benefit due to political interests. Um, does he think that is really what, what's going on here? That's the fear, yes. And he indicated this day in the press conference that we had in our headquarters in Toronto, and he said the same statement. He said, I'm just afraid because nobody contacted him. Nobody contacted us. Nobody knows what's the plan. It's not something that you turn on the TV and you read it, or there is a website that you can click on it and you can see it. So that's the fear that's happening to all of us right now. Why they decide who they are dealing with. If this is the right steps. If this is not the right steps. And also the, another fear that we have is that they will count on the UN to do everything. We voted for a Canadian government. We didn't vote for the UN to take a decision on our behalf. So uh, is the UN doing the right steps? The UN so far, great failure in Iraq and in Syria. Um, So are uh, we counting on them now? Do you think they they would even be able to locate uh, these people? Uh, The location is like many of the refugee camps in five places. So between Syria and Iraq, you have in Arbil, in Tahuk, in Sulaymaniyya, in uh, Rojava, in Kobani, in Syria. So there is a location that we know where the Yazidi refugees are. But the question here is, we're looking at a southern Yazidi girl that been raped, been tortured, and their immediate family. So we're looking at the most needy, the most need help right now. We're looking at the most vulnerable. So that's why the research has to be made in, in, in a very sophisticated way. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, uh, what do you need to know in order to be able to prepare to help for for when these women and girls actually arrive, assuming they will? Let's, let's start with the numbers. Until now, the government didn't even give us the number. How many? So the government said, yeah, we'll bring them, but they never put a number. So let's start with a number. How many so we can start? Uh, we need to know their conditions. Uh, uh, we have a lot of psychologists that want to volunteer with us to help these girls to take the first steps of healing. Uh, let's start by the support system that the government will have for them. If the government will be able to support them, uh, uh, not just financially, but uh, as well, uh, you know, physically, spiritually, uh, the kids, some of these girls will be coming back uh, with the children that they are a fruit of a rape uh, by us as fighters. Uh, all of this uh, uh, steps that we need to know in an order for us to prepare to help them upon their arrival to Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, so far nothing. Uh, uh, do you have contacts in the civil service, or is that where the breakdown is? We've been in touch with a communica- with a uh, with a minister of immigration. We've been in touch with his chief of staff. Also, radio silent from their end, but their chief of staff came 
to our offices before. We met together. We pre- we give him the proposal. You can see it online. Uh, we're also in a meeting, uh, constant communication with uh, with the opposition. So just two days ago, we communicated with Rona Ambro's office, uh, the head of the opposition. Uh, we communicate with his level chair from the NDBs, Elizabeth May from the Green. So we try to communicate with everybody in order to ensure the outcome. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but you're saying that you you it's possible that it's a political problem that you have. It's become a political problem. Like right now, the liberals and the conservatives beating the crap out of each other about it. And it seems like, like this is not the time for, for, for political anything right now, or politically correctness, or a failure of the leadership. This is the time to take a proper action for the sake of the victim. Full stop. And uh, do you, again, uh, what kind of a timeline, what do you want or need to see happen, and in what kind of a time frame? The, the time frame that the government gave us was four months. They said in four months, you will see the first victims of the Yazidi girls arriving here to Canada in four months. And, and so what has to happen now? What's happened, what has to happen now, when you say four months, you have to have all of this logistics and information and support system yesterday, not today. That's why we did the press conference a week after the announcement, because, like, you're talking about four months, man. So do, do you have information available now? Do you have, uh, say, families ready to take them in? We have 400 girls that were ready. We have 400 girls that we located them. We worked with them. We can bring them here in a split second. Just open the door for us. Uh huh. So, so there, there's no uh, guarantee or that they're going to bring the same 400 that you have been in touch with. Uh, there is no guarantee of anything. Right now, there is still radio silence. And until we hear back from the government, until they respond back to our proposal, we will continue pushing in the media. We will continue doing a press conference, demonstrating petitions. We will not remain silent. I hope this Canadian government knows we are not going anywhere. Okay. We are not going anywhere. Okay. I hope uh, Immigration Minister John McCallum is listening. Reverend Majida Shafi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.